1971, former President Ronald Reagan, that was hard to say, then the governor of California, was addressing a gathering of the Boy Scouts of America on a particular scorching Southern California day. As he neared the conclusion, Reagan paused briefly to take a sip of water. Noticeably refreshed, upon returning to the microphone, he told the audience, Now, I certainly have spoken on a number of different topics today. However, if you are to remember one thing, and only one thing, it should be this. Speeches are nothing. Thirst is everything. Always remember to obey your thirst. In 1996, Sprite adapted this quote to their slogan, Image is nothing. Thirst is everything. Obey your thirst. And through commercials, they proceeded to show that the proper, of order, a proper order of things in this life should be that your thirst comes first. So obey your thirst. And I got to thinking a lot of that. that really, that started in uh, 1996, that slogan and a lot of that idea. And their main purpose was to promote, promote their product, Sprite Soda, for 16 to 28, 24-year-olds, about 16 to 24-year-old market. And they were promoting this message of obey your thirst. Well, it worked. Their, their sales skyrocketed, and, and we can still see some of those commercials coming on in Sprite still today about the obey your thirst. But I thought that was an interesting idea. At first, it just seemed so harmless. But what is Sprite really asking me to do? In a g- generation and this is my generation in so many ways, in a generation that was taught to always look inward, always look at ourselves for that support we need. You know, we've been taught by those that pull themselves up by their bootstraps and that we just learn that all of our gratification comes from within. This commercial saying, to obey my thirst, to obey what is in me. And it really is kind of interesting. I what is obedience? What really does it mean to obey? I mean, if I weren't to do what my thirst wants, that seems kind of silly in a scheme of things, but in a bigger picture, what does it really mean to obey? What is obedience? If you know the story of the first man and the woman here on the, on the earth, told in the Bible at the very beginning, God gave them only one restriction. Don't eat of this particular tree, the tree of the, that has the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree. Everything else is completely fine. I don't know how long it lasted, how long that, that tree was sitting there, and they were just looking at it going, oh, but it looks good. Oh, it's so pretty. Surely one bite. Or maybe it was just a quick thing that Eve was passing by, and the serpent says, hey, convinced Eve to take a bite. She convinced Adam to take a bite. And then the next thing is still one of the funniest things in Scripture, that Adam and Eve decide to play hide-and-seek with God. I don't know if that's a fair, fair game when you play it with God, but they're trying to hide from God. God finds them, asks Adam, what's up? What's going on? Adam promptly blames Eve. Eve Blames the serpent. And so God starts with the serpent, works his way back, delving out his punishment for their disobedience. 
because they did not obey the command, the only command that we were given, that do not eat of this tree, they had several punishments. The serpent had to crawl on his belly. The woman would have more pain in childbirth. Uh, The man would have to work by the sweat of his brow, just to name a few. But ultimately, they were kicked out of the garden. Now, don't mistake that kicking out to be abandonment. God did not abandon them. He he planned on giving them more and proceeded to give them more opportunities to obey him and to turn to him. Obedience is, is really what I want to look at here is that it is a must for those who want to have a right relationship with God. Obedience is a must for those who want to have a right relationship with God. This morning we'll be dealing with Acts 5, and I want to look at that of what this text can teach us about obedience. In Acts 1, or 5, 1 through 11, we already talked about Ananias and Sapphira and how their, their disobedience led to death with their lying, maybe their white lie here. But in verse 12, of chapter 5, the apostles were continuing to spread the word of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They were healing people. The church was growing and it was gaining momentum. This was a good time for the church. But this made the high priest and the Sadducees jealous, according to verse 17. And they arrested the apostles and put them into prison. Pick up in verse 19. But an angel of the Lord came at night opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, Go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. When the high priest and and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to to be brought from from the jail for a trial. But when the temple guard went to the jail, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported, The jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside. But when we opened the gates, no one was there. When the captain of the temple guard and the leading priest heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it all would end. Then someone arrived with startling news. These men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. The captain went with the temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. Didn't we tell you never again to teach in this man's name? He demanded, instead you have, fulfilled, or you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. As the exchange here between the high priest and Peter indicates, this is really the second time of such confrontation. The first happens in Acts 4. But it indicates it here by saying, we gave you strict instructions not to preach in Jesus' name. Acts 4, verse 18, they said, so they called the apostles back in and commanded them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. This is a chapter earlier. So they've already been warned. And now they're back. In verse 29, though, Peter explains why he and the others continue to preach in the name of Jesus. They must obey God rather than man. 
A lot of ways, that's pulling out the trump card, right? I mean, we're taught as kids in Bible class that the answer to any question is Jesus. You know, it didn't matter. You were always going to be okay by saying, uh, Jesus, I got that. Even if it's wrong, the teacher's always going to be, good answer. Because it is a good answer. Isn't he the answer to everything we learn in Scripture? It seems like a trump card that Peter might be pulling here. This, this truth here that Peter says, if obeyed, if practiced, if we followed what he said that we should obey God rather than men, I think it would turn this world upside down. But too many times we are people so quick to obey society, to obey the Sprite commercials, anything coming on TV, to obey even moms and dads and and coaches and peers. Now, not that these are mutually exclusive. You can obey both God and your parents. But which should come first? What if those do work against each other? What if they... What if they are contrary? Which one do you choose? We should obey God rather than man. God gives us a promise of what our obedience will bring. And not just in the New Testament. He brings this promise all the way back in Jeremiah 7, verse 23. And I had a scripture on there I didn't know I had. This is what I told them. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Do everything as I say and all will be well. Now we know through Israelite history that this did not happen. All was not well, and as we read in class at the end of Zephaniah, this is the picture of, in the end of chapter 3 that all will be well. It's a beautiful picture of what can happen when all is well. But obedience, I believe obedience is a moral obligation. Now let me clarify, we're not, I'm talking specifically about obedience to God. I'm not going to open up the can of worms of, of obedience to the law of the land because that's a whole other subject of whenever it's okay to do certain things and not okay to do others, all depending on where God stands on it. That's another sermon. This is just obedience to God. Yes, we are to obey God-given authority that is over us. You know, our government, we are told that. But God gives us a specific, specific commands regarding some things in this life. I believe that it is our responsibility and obligation to do this. Obedience is not optional for those that want to please God. I think of it right now with my three-year-old. We are, we are trying to under, teach her to understand what obedience is. Right now, she thinks it's a fun game just to be contrary. It's kind of fun in some ways. Whenever it doesn't mean much, uh, I'll start saying yes, and she'll say no. It doesn't matter what we're arguing about. We just do that, and we have a good time until one of us gives, usually the dad. But whenever it is an important thing, and she asks, but why? Sometimes Katie and I just have to say, look, it's because... I said so, and I'm the authority, and you've got to listen. 
You've got to obey this. And at some point, I hope that'll transition to this understanding of what that really means. Obedience is designed to work in the context of a close relationship with God. Sure, at first it may just be obeying a set of rules, but that isn't the end product. That moral obligation of obedience is supposed to transition into doing stuff that is just in God's character, and we want to be like Him, and that's obedience. As Peter and the apostles stood in the middle of the semicircle of Jewish leaders, they're being threatened by the exact same group that had killed Jesus just a, a couple months earlier. I'm, I'm sure they felt intimidated. I'm sure they felt fairly scared because of that very fact alone, that they are surrounded by the religious authority of the time. But they speak with boldness. There was no doubt of what God wanted them to do. Jesus had told them that they would be witnesses for him. Before that, he told them to go and preach the good news to all nations, starting in Jerusalem and to Judea, to the ends of the earth. And then just recently, when the angel let him out of jail, the angel said, go back to the temple. Preach these things. You've got to be crazy. But come on, Lord. Don't you know they, they killed Jesus for this? Go back to the temple and preach. Jesus is the Messiah. It was their moral obligation. But even more so, it was something. They, God had given them a new life. It made sense to follow Him no matter what. Even though it may, may have seemed foolishness, as we see later, the cross is foolishness in the New Testament. It may seem foolishness to people, but they had the obligation. Now, it didn't happen in this story, but all throughout the early church history, we, we can read stories of martyrs. One of the, one of the earliest martyrs, uh, well, in the early times of the church, was Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. And he became a religious authority, I guess, in the mid-2nd century. Fairly respected among both circles, Christians and, and the Romans. But because he was a Christian first that play, played a problem because he would not bow down to the Roman authority. When ordered to denounce Christ, he answered, for 86 years I have been a servant and have never, he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my Jesus who saved me? I'm a Christian. And at that he died for his faith. There was a moral obligation for complete obedience for Polycarp, and I would imagine that that same moral obligation holds true today. But even more so, an obedience produces, I guess I'll call it an authority. Maybe it's better stated as a boldness. When you have obedience, you have a boldness because it, you know who's behind you. You know it's not just your word alone. You are a representative of something else. When Peter answered the Sanhedrin, it wasn't just being, I don't know, sassy or, or popping off. Probably what I did to my mom several times growing up, what most teenagers do to our parents. 
is whenever we find a good opportunity, we called it popping off, we would just shoot back a, a response that seemed just a little off or whatnot else. Peter wasn't doing this by saying we should, we should follow God rather than men. He was saying that with boldness. He was saying that with complete conviction, knowing that God has the authority here. God is the one in charge. In our lives, there's also, I would guess, that, that sense of obedience uh, fostering boldness and authority in our lives. Now, we've got to be careful with this, though. Sometimes we can get authority confused with self-righteousness. If we think we're doing pretty good in our spiritual journey and we've been praying and walking with our Lord faithfully, sometimes pride can creep in and make us think that we're better off than those around us. Maybe they're struggling in something and we're not, and so we think, well, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good, aren't I? I'm feeling pretty good about this. How can we tell the difference between authority and, and maybe what we'd call smugness? Here's a clue. True authority operates out of humility, while self-righteousness manifests itself through criticism, whether spoken or unspoken. Remember the story Jesus told about two men praying? One a tax collector and one a Pharisee. So here in Luke 18, 10 through 14, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee took by him, or stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance, dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. How did the Pharisee pray here? It was all about him. I thank you that I am not like, that I do this and I do that. We've got to be fearful if our prayers ever turn to that. That wasn't what God wanted. It's not what God wanted to hear. Now, how did the tax collector pray? He humbled himself, asked for God's mercy. There's more authority in true humility than there is in smug arrogance. Nonetheless, there is times, I guess, when that authority, that God-given authority that we know we're obeying and following God turns into a boldness that may seem come across strong. And I'm sure Peter's statement came across strong. He told them right in their face, shouldn't we obey God rather than you? That's a pretty strong statement for the people that had just killed Jesus a couple months ago. Shouldn't we do this? Obeying God by doing the things His way will result in greater boldness and authority to do greater works Jesus said we would do. But more than, than just that, obedience demonstrates our faith. I want to be clear about one thing. Obedience does not save you. It seems like so many times we can get that into our life that it's obedience that saves us. It is faith that saves us.
But faith without obedience, James, the writer James, tells us is dead. James 2, 17. You see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Obedience is the action or the expression of our faith in God. So we need to ask ourselves, if obedience is the expression of faith, how are we doing? How much are we showing our faith by our actions? Is there a lack of obedience? If there's a lack of obedience, maybe that shows a deeper faith problem in our lives. Because obedience shows our faith. The apostles and early believers had faith in Jesus, and they demonstrated that faith by obeying what he wanted them to do. It's important, as important as it is, baptism alone can't save us. Faith alone can't save. It is whenever it is coupled with obedience. Having that both together, that obedience strengthens our faith. Baptism may be the start, but obedience is the life after. And the same faith it took us to bring us to baptism, it'll continue to take us in our obedient walk with God. Jesus himself said that if not accompanied by obedience to God, it wasn't enough. That faith wasn't, or calling on his name wasn't enough here. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Words are important, but a life of obedience is what demonstrates that we are really Christ's. That we really trust Christ for that forgiveness and eternal life. Another thing obedience does is it welcomes the Holy Spirit. Welcomes the Holy Spirit into our lives. Those first important steps of obedience in God involving us to follow God's plan and finding forgiveness and then into baptism, we're promised something at baptism. It's that gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And by obeying in that act... We are welcoming in the Holy Spirit into our lives. That there is something going on there. The Jews commonly believed that the Holy Spirit would follow the Messiah, would come after the Messiah. And this is an important issue that, that, that is a common belief coming through. And this is why on the day of Pentecost, when Peter gets up to speak to everybody there in Acts 2, he quotes from Joel 2, 28-29. says this, uh, this is what Joel says, Then after doing all these things, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. In those days I will pour out my spirit, even on servants, men and women alike. This was an understanding that the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out. But as we see, it's only through obedience that that happens. Later in Acts, Paul tells the people in Athens that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent if a person doesn't obey god in repentance he or she will certainly not receive the holy spirit obeying god's call to repentance and baptism is the first step of receiving that spirit obedience opens the door for the holy spirit to work in our lives and through our lives affecting this world he wants to fill us with his power 
so we can effectively convey the good news about Jesus to others. Obedience is not just a one-time event. It's not one thing that you can check off your list, I'm done. Obedience, it's a lifestyle. So we have this culture that is telling us what we need to obey, who we need to obey, obey our thirst, obey our magazines, obey our ideas for a skinny body, whatever it may be, all these things that we need to obey. And then you have Christianity. Is it on the same playing field? Is it something that you can just choose among this plethora of things to obey and you're okay? Or is that first and foremost in our lives? This obeying of what Christ asked us to. When the Jews were conquering the promised land, coming through, and they were told to totally conquer it, to kill everyone that was there, not intermarry with them, and everything, but as we know from history, they didn't do that. But as they were coming through on their conquest, Joshua, after they had come through most of the land, he sets the people up on two sides of a mountain. On one side, they have all of the... uh, uh, they read all the, the curses if they don't obey the word of God. On the other side, they read all the blessings that if they do obey the word of the God. And Joshua then ends, ends his life, ends his, his preaching to the people, his leading the people with this statement. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Whether you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Powerful statement, I think, for serve. The synonym for that would be obey. We will obey the Lord. I hope that you are at a place where obeying God is the most important priority in your life. Obedience to God is uh, is our moral obligation. We owe our allegiance and obedience to our Creator. Obedience to God gives us greater authority or, or boldness. It is an expression of our faith in Christ. It enables us to receive that Holy Spirit when we repent and make Jesus Lord of our life. Are you willing to obey Him? Are you willing to set everything else aside to your personal desires, what you may understand of being right and true, or at least good in this life? Are you willing to set that aside and obey Christ? I hope so, and if you're ready to make that decision this morning, would you please come forward as we stand and sing?